0: If you Google world's greatest mysteries, you will find a lot of opinions, suggestions. Everything from what is dark matter, we we know that it exists, we just don't know what it is, to uh, who was Jack the Ripper who terrorized London, to who's buried in the tomb of the unknown soldier. The lists are quite varied, so I suppose the idea itself… World's Greatest Mysteries could itself belong on the list. In fact, there was a TV show just three years ago titled uh, World's Greatest Mysteries with episodes like The Easter Island Monuments, The Treasure of Oak Island. (laughs) That's interesting. Crop Circles, Bigfoot, The Devil's Triangle, and of course, Area 51. There were lots more. You can look them up. But I have one To add to the list, a mystery of great significance annually visited. Here it is. Are you ready? Did Mary know? And if she knew, what did she know? See, we seem to be a bit confused about that. The the song, Mary, Did You Know?, was written by Mark Lowry way back in 1984. I didn't realize it was that old. It's an annual favorite to some and an annual irritation to others. Some of the lyrics go like this, Mary, did you know that your baby would one day walk on water? Probably not. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered would soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? That's an interesting question, given the fact that in the Scripture, it is only God who gives sight to blind people. And Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know? song goes on, I'll stop because some of you cannot now get the tune out of your heads and you are irritated with me. Now listen, I like the song. I think it's great creativity, poetic, all of that. I think it has some great questions. But the question remains, did Mary know? And if she did, what did she know? Because upon closer investigation, it's really not that much of a mystery. I don't want to ruin anyone's favorite Christmas song, but she clearly knew. There have been lots of traditions and teachings about Mary through the centuries, some good, some not. The Catholic Church, for example, has taught a number of things. For example, the Immaculate Conception. That is, Mary was immaculately conceived without sin, no original sin, in fact, no acts of sin, and therefore, no need of a Savior. In fact, they call her the mother of God, although the Bible does not. So with that position, sinless mother of God, some actually want to make her a co-redeemer with Jesus. That's right. She or Jesus can save you. You pick, pray to which one you want. Further, they teach what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she remained a virgin throughout her life. There is the assumption of Mary when she was taken, don't miss this, body and soul into heaven, body and soul. So no purgatory for her, she had no sin, no future resurrection for her because she is already body and soul in heaven. I suppose that has something to do with her supposed sinlessness. There's also the idea that when she arrived in heaven, she was greeted by Jesus and crowned Queen of Heaven. Lots of ideas about Mary, some good, some not so much, some biblical, well, some not. But what did Mary know? And further, what do we really know biblically, faithfully about Mary and that first Christmas? It's what I want to talk about today and what is called the Annunciation. I want us to know, not just so that we can answer the question, Mary, did you know? I I want us to know what she knew, because what she knew, I believe, to be incredibly important. We're going to take a break from 1 John this week. Jump over to Luke chapter 1, the Annunciation. Read the text with me, Luke 1. Verse twenty six says this. Now, in this sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You, you see, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Zacharias to tell him that his, his barren wife was going to have a child. This was a miracle, and in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel came again, w- was sent from God this time to the city in to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged, better betrothed to a man who, whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. That's important, you see. In order to have messianic credentials, he had to be in that line. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. That's important. Favored one comes from the word grace. It's, a, it's called a divine passive, It's actually a participle, greetings being favored by God is the idea, being graced by God. The Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of greeting or salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. God's grace uh, is with you. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child or the holy begotten one, literally, shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age, past the age of childbearing. It's amazing. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's not a big deal for God to say, you're going to be pregnant. Mary said, behold, bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I'm not going to do an exposition of this text like I, like I normally do. I'll save that for later in our study in Luke, which actually is coming pretty soon. But, but clearly, as we read the text, Mary knew some things, right? Further, just for your consideration... Can we rightly assume that when the angel later appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph and Mary then compared notes? And when the shepherds appeared at the birth, right right there in in Bethlehem, do you suppose they told Joseph and Mary why they showed up? (laughs) We just were walking by. No! Do you suppose they told her why? Mary knew. She knew that she would bear a son named Jesus, so named because he would... Save his people from their sins. The angel told, we assume Gabriel told Joseph in Matthew Matthew chapter 1. Did you know, Mary, that your son would save our sons and daughters? Yes. She knew we would be called the son of the most high. That's a reference to God. She knew she, he would reign over Israel and sit on David's throne forever. That's a, a reference to his Messiahship. In fact, the, angels, um, uh, the, the angel that appeared to the shepherds said, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you, who is Christ the Lord. And we're told that after the shepherds' visit, she treasured all of these things in her heart. Mary knew. She knew the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. That's a very interesting word. It was used to speak of the presence of God overshadowing the tabernacle, later the temple. It would later be used, this specific word of God overshadowing Jesus and His three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see, it was a word that spoke of divine presence. She knew that since God would overshadow her to make her conceive that the Holy Child would be called... Son of God. Did you know, Mary, that when you kiss this little baby, you kiss the face of God? She knew. She maybe didn't understand it, but she knew. Later, when she uttered the Magnificat, it comes later in the chapter that we just read. It comes from, My soul doth magnify the Lord, the Magnificat. She said, My spirit had rejoiced in God, my Savior. Did you know, Mary, that this son that you delivered would soon deliver you? Yes. I am suggesting that she knew what you need to know about that first Christmas. That to you, a Savior who has been born, who is Christ the Lord. So let's go back to that first Christmas. Let's look at the circumstances of his birth uh, so we can know what it was really like, and who he really was. Because I believe it is incredibly important for you to know. In his book, In Search of the Real Spirit of Christmas, Pastor Dan Schaefer asks of the first nativity scene. Now, not the nativity set that you have sitting, perhaps, in your living room. The first nativity scene. He asks the question, what is wrong with this picture? Jesus, the Son of God, laid in a manger? Schaefer says further, I've heard the story so often that I've stopped thinking about it. But when I do think about it, I realize that this scene is not normal. And God doesn't want me to view it as pretty and quaint. He wants me, listen, to be appalled at the situation, even bewildered and confused But the truth is, we don't want to be appalled, so we change the scene. We try to sanitize it with our quaint nativity sets, with our sweet Christmas cards and carols, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. I I, I want us to think about it again and be astonished, appalled. It was not a quaint and serene scene it was not silent night especially for those involved despite what the christmas cards that you received portray for example let's let's look at those parents first there was joseph michael talked about him a few weeks ago we don't really know a lot about him in fact He's the figure most dispensable in the nativity sets and in the Christmas plays. At least he, he plays somewhat of a secondary role, kind of unnecessary. I mean, boy, yeah, the scripture does call him a righteous man. Uh, just months before that first Christmas had to be the happiest days of his life, the hap- happiest time, Right? He had proposed, more likely his parents had arranged a marriage to the girl of his dreams. I know the Bible doesn't say that, but by this time, even arranged marriages were happy occasions, which often took the desires of the prospective couple into consideration. We don't know uh, how old Joseph was. We suppose he was young, that it was likely his first marriage. We would expect the story to tell us otherwise. He was just a, he was just a poor carpenter, but he made a good enough living to provide for his soon-to-be wife. Uh, true, they, well, they lived in Nazareth, a kind of despised little Galilean community, out of the way, kind of a nothing town. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Just a village on the top of a little hill. The estimate's place that it at maybe 500 inhabitants. As far as Joseph was concerned, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He would say, yes, you see, Mary was there. To whom he was betrothed. At this point, we don't really know a lot about Mary either. Again, lots of silly teachings and traditions have arisen, but all we really know is what Luke tells us here. Kent Hughes calls her a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. I know that, but it's true. She was highly favored because the Lord was with her. To be highly favored, again, means to have God's grace showered upon her, and grace is getting what we don't deserve, even Mary. Now, we suppose she was quite young. History tells us that brides at this time were in their early to mid-teens. Oh, and there's one other important detail. She was a virgin. Now, we can... Imagine that she, like most brides, was looking forward to the end of this one-year betrothal period. It's kind of a really intentional engagement period when she would be brought as a pure bride to the man of her dreams. There would be a week-long um, uh, marriage celebration. Sure, it's just a little village, but everybody would participate in a week-long celebration complete with wedding parade where she would be brought into the home of her beloved Joseph. Certainly, it was to be the most wonderful time of the year, right? Break out the hot chocolate. But something quite unexpected happened. One otherwise uneventful day, the angel Gabriel, who had appeared to Zacharias, now appeared to this teenage Mary and told her she was to have a child. Well, yeah, she hoped so. This was the dream of of every Jewish girl to produce a male heir. Problem is, she would have this child before her marriage was consummated to Joseph. That's a problem. And this was not just any child, but the son of the most high. Mary's perplexed. How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. Remember, Gabriel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, power of the Most High will overshadow you. For this reason, the holy child, the holy begotten will begotten one will be called the Son of God, meaning she knew. But can you imagine? so used to the story. But place yourself in this young girl's sandals. She's she's not married. At least she'd not had physical relations with Joseph yet, and she's found to be pregnant. Both she and Joseph knew that he's not the father. This was scandalous. Certainly the fact that betrothed Mary before marriage was consummated, being found pregnant, would at least be and make the town's gossip columns, and raise eyebrows. And her story? Her defense? <laughs> I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Sure you are. Suddenly, this most wonderful time of the year isn't quite so happy. In fact, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, relative, very likely uh, to deal with the potential scarlet letter she will be forced to bear. Luke tells us she arose and went in a hurry. She stayed there three months. That is likely until John promised Zechariah Elizabeth, who would become John the Baptist, likely until John was born, meaning that she returned to Nazareth. Think about it, just at the beginning, after three months, just at the beginning of the times that she was showing. Where you been, Mary? In the meantime, Joseph is no doubt crushed. He knows he's not the father. If he wanted, the law gave him the right to have her, Mary stoned. This love of his life, seemingly, surely unfaithful. But being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, he was thinking of divorcing, divorcing her and sending her away quietly. I have a question for you. Why would God do this this way? What is wrong with this picture? Why would he not have had Jesus born to a more prominent and respectable family and more acceptable circumstances? So, I mean, am I not born to Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the planet? Well, uh, yes, okay, the Messiah was promised to, to be the seed of Abraham, of the line of David, but couldn't Jesus have been born in a, to a more prominent Jewish family. Couldn't have been born to a Jewish family who lived in Rome or Alexandria, leading cities of the day. Oh, I know. How about Jerusalem to, to, the, to, to the high priest or, or to a leading Pharisee? Highly questionable circumstances of this first Christmas were not likely the way that you would have written the script because this was scandalous. Why did God do it this way? You know what then happened. While Joseph is in the deep throes of despair, the angel of the Lord, again unnamed, probably Gabriel, appeared to him in a dream and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's true. What she has been telling you is true. The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's incredible. So Joseph awoke from his sleep and did what the angel commanded. Took pregnant Mary as his wife. No record, no record of a a week-long marriage ceremony. Prayed to his house. She remained a virgin until Jesus was born, meaning no physical intimacy between new husband and new wife. They were assuredly the gossip of the town's rumor mill this most wonderful time of the year. But then if you can believe it, it gets worse. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, issued a decree that a census should be taken of all, of all the inhabited earth. A bit arrogant. He wasn't the ruler of all the earth, but he at least wanted to know how many people he did rule, likely for tax purposes, to write next year's budget. Everyone was commanded to go and register to the place of their ancestral origin, the place the, 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 the place of their forefather's birth. I got to thinking about that this week. Um, this is 2020. This is the year of the census. What if Emperor Trump had commanded that of you? That you go back to the place of your ancestral birth to register there. Now, for me, it wouldn't have been too bad. My dad was born in Gastonia. I would have hopped in a car and and, and, and driven to Gastonia. But then I got to thinking about that. The distance from, I don't know, Boone to Gastonia is about the same distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But can you imagine walking that with a pregnant wife? Why did God do it this way? Joseph was of the line and family of David, so he had to go to Judea to the town of Bethlehem to register. You know what's about to happen. Jesus will be born there. But why Why Bethlehem? The story actually goes from bad to worse. Of course, Bethlehem, you say. Micah 5 said he would be born there. And we have these sweet thoughts of this precious, cozy little town uh, just look at the covers of your Hallmark Christmas cards. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. How serene. Actually, Micah says of this two-bit town, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth uh, for me to be the ruler in Israel. From Nazareth to Bethlehem was not much of an upgrade. It'd be like going from Boone to, I don't know, Deep Gap. <laughs> Bethlehem was too puny to be considered of any account. Again, why was Jesus born there? Why didn't, why didn't God choose a more important urban center for the birth of His Son? We're talking the Son of God. What is wrong with this picture? Mary and Joseph arrived. We assume because of the crowds gathered for the census, they they weren't shopping. There was no room for them at the inn. Now I don't know what you think of when you think of an inn, but they wouldn't have been a wouldn't have been a quaint bed and breakfast, complete with individual rooms, feather beds, private baths, baths, muffins, and hot coffee for breakfast. If there had been room, there would have been it. They would have been ushered into a crowded single room lined with cots, fire pit in the center for cooking and for warmth. But there, was, but there wasn't even room in the inn in those fine accommodations. So Luke tells us very simply that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Is that how you would have done it? We're we're so used to the story that it does not astonish us, but it should. We assume from this brief account that Jesus was born in a stable surrounded by animals since a manger was a feeding trough for animals, but there's no mention of animals, no cattle lowing, no ox and lamb keeping time. We imagine the innkeeper, who by the way is never mentioned, showing them to a barn or a cave where animals were kept, hardly sanitary, hardly the place for the birth of the Savior of the world. No mention is made of labor and delivery, although contrary to tradition, we suppose it was quite the same as any other delivery. It was not a silent night. Only mother and father left alone in a stable with no midwife to help. Somehow I doubt this young mother found her circumstances quaint. There she went into labor crying out in pain and fear with beleaguered Joseph as her only attendant. We see a romanticized picture of round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, complete with halos distributed for all present. But there were no flannel sleepers, just strips of cloth, no crib made by the skilled hands of a father carpenter, just a manger. Why would God do it like this? What's wrong with this picture? You, you cannot recreate this drama with a nativity scene even if you tried, even if you wanted to. Who else was present at the birth? The Magi didn't actually make it till sometime later. This is interesting. When they finally did arrive following the star... Probably not Jupiter and Saturn, but following a star, we, we have the further hallmark image of them worshiping and presenting gifts of gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. True enough. But Matthew tells us something very interesting. It led to slaughter. Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became enraged, sent, and slew all the male. I'm reading from Matthew 2. All the male children who were in Bethlehem in its vicinity from two years and under. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because, there was, there were, because they were no more. Does anyone have a se- that scene depicted in their nativity sets? Soldiers slaughtering babies. Kind of messes with the whole holly jolly white Christmas theme. Back to those actually present at the birth. By the way, no angels were present at the maternity ward either. They simply announced the birth to the shepherds out in the fields, watching their flocks by night. Having heard the news, uh, we read the shepherds did make their way into the town where the child lay in the manger and they went from there telling everyone who would listen uh, what had been told them about this child. Mary knew that. Told everyone who would listen, but there's another problem. No one would listen. Not to poor lowly shepherds. They were among the dregs of society, considered thieves and unreliable. They were not permitted to Give testimony in a court of law. They were liars, cheats. And here they are, the most likely, unlikely characters of all, announcing the birth of the Messiah. Who would listen to them about a child born in Bethlehem and the supposed appearance of a heavenly host of angels? These guys had just had too much to drink. What is wrong with this picture? Who else was present at the birth? Well, one key figure we've left out in the center of the nativity, the baby Jesus, if it's true. If it's true, He was the Son of God, God in the flesh. Back to Pastor Schaefer. Christmas is the day we celebrate the entrance of the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all-righteous, all-holy and glorious God into our world. When I stop and consider this fact and then look at the scene of the baby Jesus in the manger, I scratch my head and say, what's wrong with this picture? Think about it. The God of the universe, too glorious to look upon lest we die, lying in a foul feeding trough. The the, the God before, before whom great people of the past, I don't know, like Moses and Isaiah, fell on their faces. From whom, Isaiah 6, we read the angels hide their faces in a filthy stable. Who would do it like that? Two other significant things you have to remember about this birth from the book of Philippians chapter 2. Although he existed in the form of God he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. No, he emptied himself, this God of the universe, and took on the form of a bondservant was made in the likeness of flesh. Men. Humbled himself, taking on the appearance of a man. Most agree this self-abasement, this self-humbling, this self-emptying included the Voluntary laying aside of His glory, the preeminent, infinite display of His majesty. He wrapped Himself, this glorious God, in human flesh. Dare I say, at least as foul as the manger. Further, Philippians also tells us the reason that He came to become obedient to the point of death in that flesh, death on a cross. So let's review. Mary loses her virginity, well, at least her reputation, loses her childhood dream of a wedding ceremony in which everyone celebrates. Joseph becomes the laughingstock of the community. At least they think he's crazy. Mary gives birth to a child while on a mandated trip to another less than favorable community and is forced to lay her firstborn in a manger wrapped in strips of cloth. (laughs) Forty days later, they're so poor they can't, as they go to present Jesus at the temple as required by the law, they cannot even afford the offering of a lamb, which was suggested, but presented instead two turtle doves or pigeons allowed, you know, for poor people. We spend more money every year on gifts under the tree than they could afford to present at the temple, the Savior of the world. The angels who were present, not at the stable or the cave, wherever it was, out in the fields, they announced to the shepherds and to us the birth of Jesus with these words, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. We shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you, born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared, and with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God. There was a celebration, you see. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Good news of great joy for all the people. A Savior of the world has been born. While it will cost him his life on a cross, it will mean forgiveness of sin and eternal life for all those who believe. As we close this morning, let me answer the, the question, at least to the best of my limited understanding. Why would God do it like this? Why did Jesus come to a poor working-class couple in a no-count town in the, in, in, in the middle of nowhere, a little Middle Eastern country under oppressive Roman rule where there was no room for him in the inn, laid in a manger, and his birth announced to lowly, despised shepherds. Why would God do it like this? Because I believe the eternal God lying helplessly in a manger is an object lesson impossible to ignore. It was there. It it, uh, it, it is true there was no room for him in the inn because the truth is, there was no room for him anywhere. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The nativity scene, forever fixed in time, reminds us not only of his character, but frankly of ours. The Creator came to a hostile world, not with divine, justly due divine wrath, Prepared to destroy all those who would treat him with contempt, but in divine mercy and love, prepared to endure all that that world would throw at him. And throw at him they did. Could God's attitude of love and mercy toward a hostile and rebellious world be made more clear than being found in a manger? While lying in a manger, God was extending an invitation to you. To all who would come. He was announcing in a dramatic way. He had come to be available and accessible to all who would believe, even if you feel like you don't deserve it. That's why we call it grace. To all who would believe, even a nothing couple, even lowly shepherds, even you. Let me finish with the words of Pastor Schaefer. Whenever I'm tempted to blurt out, Lord, you don't know what it's like to be humiliated like this, he points to the manger. When I cry out, Lord, I deserve better than this, he points to the manger. When I tell God, You see all these injustices in my life? Why don't you change them? You have the power. He reminds me of the manger. This isn't the stuff of Christmas cards. It is the stuff of transformation. What's wrong with this picture? Nothing at all. Though the manger is disturbing, the message it brings is anything but. For this primitive scene of our God lying in a manger reminds us of this precious truth. We are no longer alone. Emmanuel, God with us, Let's come.